Hello, and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affect and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Bentley Kaplan. Now, a lot of our US colleagues are still recovering from the fun, stressful, family-filled week of Thanksgiving, and our much-beloved Mike DiCibedo is one of those people, so I'll be stepping into the gap of this turkey-shaped hangover to take you through our weekly show. Now, first up, we'll see what to make of Pfizer's recent announcement that its COVID-19 vaccine is 95% effective, as the company looks to move from phase three of clinical trials into the big, wide world. Then we're gonna move on to another risk versus reward analysis for a logistics company in South Korea that is getting blowback for its tactics to maximize efficiency and profit during the heady days of the COVID-19 pandemic. Then we're gonna change tack and take a look at the slow burn that is governance at banks as these timeless institutions try to get a grip on big complex questions like climate and diversity. Thanks for sticking around, let's do this. Now, I'm gonna be honest. When I grabbed my recording equipment out of the office in March, when South Africa went into a very strict lockdown, I did not envision still being recording shows out of my bedroom all the way into the deep end of November. And life outside the sexy world of podcasts has also not really returned to normal. I mean, think about travel, think about schools, think about your workplace. Think about how complicated festive season celebrations are going to be. Even without mentioning politics, or who was supposed to bring that second bottle of wine. So when a multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical company announces that it has a vaccine for COVID-19 that is more than 90% effective, it's not only shareholders that are paying attention. And in case you missed it, that's what the US company Pfizer dropped on the 18th of November, when it announced that together with the German company BioNTech had concluded phase three trials of the BNT162B2 vaccine with some very, very promising results. And side note, there is also a deeper layer to the story involving the sale of $5.6 million worth of the CEO's stock on the 9th of November, which happened on the same day that the company announced that the interim results of its vaccine candidate was showing efficacy of more than 90%. But that is a complex event to unwind. So today we are just gonna stick to the basics of phase three clinical trials and the simply named BNT162B2 vaccine. Now to help me break down what phase three clinical trial means in practical terms, I've gotten Amita Nair, one of our ESG Supremos based in Mumbai. And in addition to covering the healthcare sector, COVID-19 has also seen Amita doing a lot of homeschooling for her son. So she transitioned pretty seamlessly into breaking things down into simple terms for little old me. Uh, in a clinical trial, first things begin with a preclinical phase where the safety or you know the toxicity of any drug or in this case a vaccine is judged. So basically this might include animal trials, etc. And when it is established as safe in that, it goes into the clinical phase of the trials where we talk about phase one, phase two and phase three. Now, in phase one, typically the vaccine is administered to a few people, again, to check for the safety profile of the vaccine. If it succeeds, it moves into the second phase and there a larger number of people are recruited. So in phase one, typically less than 100 people would be there. But in phase two, we'd be looking at something like about a thousand people. And in phase three, you go into large scale clinical trials. So in the case of Pfizer, phase three uh, consisted of about 43,000 participants. In that phase, you check for the ultimate efficacy of the vaccine. The interim results for the Pfizer vaccine showed that it was effective in preventing the disease in 90% of the participants who were administered the vaccine. 
and uh, that was interim but final results showed that it was about 95% uh, when they concluded the trials so the 95% efficacy and um, pfizer have actually concluded all its phase 3 uh, clinical trials and it has actually applied for emergency use authorization also which means that uh, the vaccine can be distributed without uh, you know full scale fda approval and this is done in the case of emergencies right so this sounds really really good namita told me that this is all hopeful promising and generally all-round good news. And the good news from Pfizer was boosted by the biotech company Moderna announcing that it had also developed its own vaccine, also through phase 3 clinical trials and also with an efficacy above 90%. And then Oxford University, in collaboration with AstraZeneca, announced they had a two-dose vaccine, which was showing efficacy of at least 70%. And since I interviewed Namita, there have been a lot of moving pieces. Britain's Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency granted emergency authorization for the use of Pfizer's vaccine, the first country in the world to do so. British hospitals have been told to be ready to distribute the vaccine by as early as December the 7th. But despite promising clinical trial results, many health authorities around the world may still be holding their collective breath, despite the slew of good news. And that's because the vaccines now have to leave very controlled environments to be produced at a mass scale and then delivered to billions of people. This is when phase four of the vaccine trial effectively starts, something known as post-marketing surveillance. And this will basically tell us the efficacy and safety of these different vaccines as they're rolled out to the general public. And together with health authorities, companies like Pfizer, Moderna and AstraZeneca and their investors will be watching very, very closely. Because if something goes wrong with any of these vaccines, it has the potential to go wrong millions of times over. And the French company Sanofi Pasteur had a brush with this type of risk in phase four of its dengue fever vaccine, which had rolled out in the Philippines in April 2016. Now, despite no major warning signs in phase three of its clinical trials, once phase four started, reports started coming in of children dying, allegedly from vaccine-related complications. In late November 2017, the company issued a statement highlighting potential risks associated with its vaccine, and days later the Philippines killed the dengue vaccination program. It's still not clear whether the vaccine was the cause of any deaths, and Sanofi Pasteur disputes any causal relationship. But the Philippine government has pressed ahead with litigation, including criminal charges against company executives. So that's the type of story that can hang around in the mind of vaccine producers and their investors. So a savvy ESG analyst may start looking at what sort of measures a company like Pfizer has in place to measure the quality risks associated with a COVID-19 vaccine. We do look at the preparedness of a company to actually scale up these things because it is something unprecedented. The demands on the manufacturing capabilities of the company and the supply chain capabilities of a company are huge, they're gigantic. So uh, in that case, we would look at very crucial things like what does a company do for housekeeping? Does it have internal processes already that uphold, um, you know, the quality standards? Uh, does it have any sort of certification to independent quality standards? So these are some things that the company must be doing internally. Another issue is the very nature of Pfizer's vaccine. I think it's pretty common knowledge now that uh, Pfizer's vaccine needs a storage temperature of minus 70 degrees Celsius, which is, it is colder than an Arctic winter. I don't think even very developed countries are fully equipped to make such uh, circumstances uh, readily uh, available for a vaccine to be transported and to be stored in such uh, at such temperatures. So that's one big challenge for Pfizer's vaccine. See, the catch is that even after having developed a successful vaccine, 
A company like Pfizer still needs to maintain oversight of the supply chains that are delivering this vaccine all over the world. And at MSCI ESG Research, we do assess Pfizer and its peers in the pharmaceuticals industry on the product safety and quality key issue. Now, because this industry is highly regulated, pharma companies have to follow very, very strict quality standards. But even in this regulated industry, companies still slip up. And like some of its competitors, Pfizer has a long history of quality-related controversies that have triggered a number of lawsuits. Just the kinds of events that may make investors watch the next few months very, very closely. And whichever way you slice it, the road from success in a phase 3 clinical trial to wrestling the COVID monster to the ground is still a long one. And one question that will be front of mind for many, not just investors, is who gets it first? Because a part of me is worried that the vaccine is going to go to the highest bidders first and only eventually trickle down to the rest of the world. For countries that can self-finance vaccines, you know, so which is typically the high-income countries, like the US, most of the European Union approach, many pharmaceutical companies and buy a fixed number of doses. So they'll take 100 million doses from one company, 200 million doses from another company. And also because a lot of the R&D for these vaccines, these COVID vaccines, has been subsidized by the government. Which means that you are uh, ensuring access for your country for a certain fixed number of doses of that vaccine. But there are countries that are low and low middle income and those countries cannot do this. So then there are multilaterals, very, very much at the forefront of it is the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Initiative, so CEPI. These multilaterals have enough money to buy a large number of doses. CEPI has done this with AstraZeneca for the University of Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. And uh, they have assured a large number of vaccines will be uh, you know, distributed in the uh, LMICs and LICs. But the truth is, and this, uh, and the WHO has been reiterating this fact, that the equitable distribution of a vaccine is the only way to reduce morbidity and mortality globally. It won't do that, you know, only a certain number of countries have access to the vaccine. And of course, the rollout of the vaccine is again another question. It probably will begin as, uh, you know, the high-risk groups. Uh, so healthcare providers, the elderly, they would be the ones who get it first. And then afterwards, it would be gradually rolled out. And from COVID-19 vaccines, we move to the supply chains that are keeping everything ticking over. Because it's not only the supply of vaccines that the COVID pandemic has seen ramping up, e-commerce is having a year like no other. But for one company based in South Korea, CJ Logistics, a dominant player in the logistics business there, this boon in e-commerce has been a bit of a mixed blessing. Profits have been up, sure, but that hasn't come without a social price. According to statements from labor unions in South Korea, the more intense demand for logistics has triggered a big spike in overwork. And this overwork may have been a contributing factor in the deaths of 14 workers during the pandemic. And at least five of those deaths are linked to the company CJ Logistics. Now, before we really get into it, MSCI ESG research as of the 25th of November had given CJ Logistics a letter rating of B, just one notch above the worst possible of triple C and a long, long way from the top rating of triple A. While its governance practices are not atypical for South Korean peers, we also noted key concerns in how CJ Logistics manages its workers and its safety risks, scoring well below average compared with other road and rail companies in our coverage. And it turns out that those weaknesses, combined with an exploding e-commerce segment, has been a challenging combination for the company to handle. 
SK Kim, one of our ESG heroes based in Seoul, is going to help break down the story for us. It is not new. It is not the instant phenomenon that the logistics companies are positively impacted by the COVID. But um, at least in Korea, if you look at the breakdowns of the percentage of online commerce has increased from 18% in 2006 to above 40% in 2019. Uh, and that, that is also because of the first competition um, among the logistics companies. Uh, typical incentive program for those delivery workers are based on um, how many packages that they deliver per month. According to the statistics, uh, the workers get around 0.72 US dollars per delivered uh, package, which means that the delivery workers need to work more hours to earn more money because the competition is so fierce that uh, what they get per delivery package is getting smaller and smaller. So steady e-commerce growth and a sudden spike in 2020 has intensified competition between logistics companies. And that's not unique to Korea, of course, nor are attempts to push the challenges of competition onto delivery workers by setting up incentives for faster delivery. And for anyone watching the gig economy debates in Europe and the US, what's happening in South Korea at the moment will certainly rhyme. In Korea, the full-time employees cannot work uh, more than certain hours per week, but that regulation does not apply to those delivery workers because of the special um, contract that they make with uh, those logistics companies, um, which is similar, which is very similar to the precarious workers or contractors that the big um, IT companies like Amazon is hiring, right? Or the, or the drivers of Uber. So it's very similar case for the CJ logistics delivery workers and other logistics companies workers. They are subcontracted workers. So um, according to regulation in Korea, um, they're not really protected uh, in the same extent uh, with full-time um, employees So as these logistics companies look to compete for market share, one major avenue to keep costs down is to use contractors that aren't restricted by working hours and don't necessarily have those pesky, expensive insurance requirements. But human beings aren't a line item. They have breaking points. And some companies, like CJ Logistics, are learning that the hard way. In 2020, news of multiple worker deaths attributed to overwork rippled through South Korean communities. Across regulators and into labor unions, raising outrage and demands for change. So they faced major criticism and um, there has been a lot of news coverage um, talking about um, those precarious working conditions that delivery workers um, have faced. So what um, CJ Logistics uh, said was that um, they're going to deploy um, additional 4,000 workers until the first quarter of next year to um, alleviate uh, the workload uh, of, of their existing workforce. And also they said they're going to make sure all the delivery workers are covered by the um, safety insurance. CJ Logistics also announced that uh, they're going to automate the sorting process to alleviate uh, the excessive works um, by those delivery workers that actually caused uh, those um, safety events. Um, this year. And from exhausted logistics workers in South Korea 
we step behind the scenes to take a closer look at governance in the banking industry. Now, it can sometimes seem like any random week you open a newspaper, there will be a headline about a bank. Whether it's because they're financing a new coal power plant or no longer financing one, whether it's about a money laundering cartel, or even whether it's because they've just appointed a new female CEO. So today I wanted to talk with Aura Toda. She works in our team of unparalleled governance analysts, and she has a special place in her heart for banks. And governance, it seems, has a special place in the heart of banks. So I, I think that governance is essential for the sustainable growth of companies across all industries, but perhaps it is even more important at banks um, given the effects that the 2007-2008 uh, financial crisis had on the economy. And, you know, since then, over more than a decade, the, the industry has become highly regulated and, and banks have started improving their governance practices compared to uh, the pre-financial um, crisis period. For example, now banks are required to have a, a board-level risk committee, uh, which is something that other industries um, are not required to do. Um, and I think also another um, interesting aspect of governance in banks is the existence of committees that cover culture and company values. And I think this is particularly interesting because controversies in this industry are generally linked to bank culture. So it's important to see whether the board considers uh, these issues on a regular basis and, and whether the company culture um, is set at the top. Um, for example, the, the account fraud scandal at Wells Fargo had culture at its core when you know, millions of accounts are created on, on behalf of the clients without their consent um, so that bank employees could meet aggressive targets. Now, the suggestion that a problematic culture is a problem for banks is, is nothing new. But what has really started to shift for banks is how investors are increasingly focused in their role as enablers or disablers in the decisions that banks take to provide or withhold capital. And the way that banks take those decisions can be traced back to their governance team. And those teams are under increasing pressure to do something, to make a move. I definitely think climate uh, was at the forefront of the governance discussion in the banks industry. Um, and climate because financial companies are increasingly being recognized as climate actors. Uh, specifically, we saw a number of shareholder resolutions at general meetings asking banks to phase out uh, financing of fossil fuel um, companies and, and to set targets and deadlines for achieving that. Um, and some examples that come to mind are um, Barclays in the UK, um, Standard Bank in, in South Africa and uh, Mitsuho Financial Group in Japan. Um, these last two companies uh, were the first in their respective um, uh, countries to, to have a climate uh, proposal. Um, so we see this trend across the different regions, not just in Europe. Uh, we might see more banks being ex exposed to climate shareholder activism in the future. Um, and I think from a climate governance uh, point of view, the, the board, which is the, um, the highest authority, should have the uh, required skills to, to manage this risk, uh, manage climate change risk. And uh, we should look at whether the, the boards are, have include any climate expertise uh, or if, on the contrary, board members are involved with uh, fossil fuel companies. And maybe it's because I've been locked up with my kids for too long, but as I was speaking to Ara, I kept thinking back to the original Mary Poppins movie, starring Julie Andrews. And seeing that movie now, as an adult in training, was really eye-opening. Mostly because 
George Banks, the father character, worked at a bank. A serious bank. A serious bank run by old white men. A bank that did not like change. So maybe it's a sign of the changing times that as banks are thrust into an increasingly dynamic space where they're having to take a position on difficult and complex topics, where the neutral ground is getting harder to find, that they are also adapting their governance teams. But the financial sector is well known for not being very diverse, especially at the top in the boardroom and, and management. But uh, things are changing, but they are changing slowly because even now there are very few women leading large banks. We, we do have a few. Uh, we have Alison Rose at NatWest, I think, in the UK. She was appointed last year. Um, Jane Fraser at Citigroup uh, was appointed this year and will take over as CEO in 2021. Um, and uh, my analysis into the diversity at banks shows that uh, what all these banks have in common is that the, their board is um, gender diverse. And that, I think, may have increased the chances of a woman to be appointed CEO. And maybe because boards are becoming more diverse, we may also expect that the top executive position in a financial institution will become more diverse. And not just in terms of gender, but also other issues such as race and, and ethnicity. And that is it for the week. A look at the quality and safety risks for pharmaceutical and biotech industries that are readying for an assault on COVID-19 how an industry's social externalities in the form of worker well-being is leading to blowback for a logistics company that was riding high on the pandemic's sizable e-commerce wave, and how banks are having to change their governance practices, their very selves, to keep pace with the changing world. A massive thanks to Namita and SK and Aura for their take on the news with an ESG twist. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you're listening to this. All and any feedback is super awesome. It helps us to get better and to get you what you really want to hear. If you've got the energy for it, hit that old subscribe button. Thanks for your time and catch you again soon. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc. subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research, LLC, a registered investment advisor and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to, nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.